0: And welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed in the rest of the world. Uh, Yeah, thank you for tuning in. And we've got in a moment a conversation with the chair of Compass, Neil Lawson. Uh, Neil, I first met when he was working... Uh, for the 1997 campaign for Labour, and was, uh, at the time, a passionate uh, New Labour devotee. But he has um, reflected and changed as that government took shape. And anyway, I'll talk about why I'm interviewing him in a moment. But first, a bit of context, really, to our discussion. Our favourite word, by the way, for new listeners, context. Only can make that sense of things with context. And I was reading a letter uh, in last week's New Statesman magazine, which I thought I would read out uh, to you now. In 19... This is the letter. In 19... And it's not one of your emails. For the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. Uh, emails to me will be next week, of course. But for now, this is a letter from the, in the New Statesman from Dr Stephen Watkins. In 1962, I was a Conservative. I believed privilege could only be justified by service. High taxes on very high incomes were necessary to prevent an entrepreneurial economy becoming a rentier economy, and Keynesian growth would finance public service improvements and a welfare state that steadily reduced inequality. I was suspicious of ideologically driven large-scale change. These were the mainstream policies of the Macmillan government at the time. In 60 years, I've moved from centre-right to hard-left without changing my opinions. And there's a kind of reminder of the degree since 1997 of the change in the Conservative Party, away from that Macmillan one-nationism that enabled uh, Dr Stephen Watkins to vote Conservative when he had the chance to do so in the early 1960s. And of course, that has pulled the whole of British politics rightwards. So if you reflect on 1997 and the new Labour pitch then, it was to the right, say, of the SDP, who themselves were reacting in the early 80s to uh, Labour, as they saw it, becoming too left-wing. And so we're in a sort of strange place. It's why terms like centre-ground, which is used so often in the British media and amongst some politicians, Uh, needs greater precision, centre ground in a political spectrum, which has moved to the right, or centre ground in a way that would be, say, seen as the centre in Germany or something like that. Anyway, that's one thing to reflect on. The other is uh, Keir Starmer's approach, it seems, to winning and therefore perhaps to governing is very influenced by New Labour, uh, and how they won in 1997. He is, as far as I know, the only leader, I've been talking with others interested in political history about this, the only leader we can think of who does two things. First of all, listens and actively takes advice from a previous Labour leader. I mean, it, there's a book to be done about Keir Starmer and previous Labour leaders. He's kicked one out, but listens and follows uh fairly closely, it seems, the advice of Tony Blair across the board and Gordon Brown in some specific areas. Others, when you think about it, uh, Margaret Thatcher didn't speak to Ted Heath. Tony Blair, well, Harold Wilson was ill when Tony Blair became leader and died. Of course, Jim Callaghan was still around, but they didn't really have a dialogue. Similarly, David Cameron, Thatcher was ill by the time he became a leader. I'm reflecting, reflecting on election winners. And the election winners also... Uh, their pitch at a general election is absolutely distinct, with no echoes of previous pitches. Um, 79, Thatcher won with a very distinct pitch, which had no no one was going around saying, look, Heath won in 1970 by doing this, why don't you copy it? Thatcher was absolutely unique in 79, and of course won. Blair uh, didn't hire Harold Wilson's Uh, staff to work with him, nor did he look at the landslide-winning manifesto of 1966 and try to copy that. And yet here with Kissam we've had five missions with its echo of the five early pledges and and other things as well. Incremental, this non-DOM tax, as far as I can tell, is going to pay for childcare, the revival of the NHS, and so on. Again, echoes to some extent, with 97. Another part of our contextualising, before we hear from Neil, is that it seems to me Sunak might prove to be a more formidable opponent than fashionable orthodoxy suggested in his early months in charge. Most voters aren't interested in Northern Ireland and won't follow the twists and turns. But what happens in politics is somehow or other, although detail isn't followed... An impression is formed of a leader uh, through various kind of developments. And the developments aren't followed, but the impression still takes shape. And if Rishi Sunak is to prove more formidable, and again, this is a big if, clearly Labour need to be in an absolutely rock-solid place uh, by the time of the election, presumably the autumn of next year. Probably the course has been set, but it is interesting hearing different interpretations. So over to Neil Lawson. I uh, thought it would be good to have a conversation. I read an article he wrote in The Guardian saying why he didn't think this was 1997 and a different approach was required. And uh, I was interested in this because that's my instinct too. And, you know, in some it's it's really this crazy thing of comparing past elections. You know, some are saying, is it 1992? Maybe it's closer to 1974 in the scale of the challenges any government will inherit if it wins. The level of kind of impotent despair is much, much greater than 97. Andy Burnham made the same point when I interviewed him for the podcast recently. So yeah, Neil, Neil, as I say, I met him first in the 97 election campaign, where I was then political editor of the New Statesman, and was writing about the caution that uh, determined the new Mm -hmm. Labour pitch in 97, where many others were hailing its radicalism, a term Tony Blair used and others uh, repeated willingly uh, in that period. And Neil said he disagreed with me. He thought it was very Radical or had exciting radical potential. That was the first coffee we ever had. But he became disillusioned. Anyway, he set up Compass. um, And our conversation begins with me asking him to tell us a bit more about that. And then we go wider. So over now to our conversation with the chair of Compass, Neil Lawson. Neil Lawson, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Now, you've been running Compass a long time. And I followed it with great
1: interest. You describe yourself as an all-party organisation. Now, what does that mean? Well, the first thing, Steve, is we didn't start as an all-party organisation. When we started 20 years ago, we started in the belly of the Labour Party. Because that was, you know, in 2003, that was the powerful entity. And I'd been close to the leadership of New Labour. And a few of us could see it starting to go wrong. And so we thought what we needed after lots of debate was a bit more pressure to push new Labour in a more social-democratic, radical direction. So we started this organisation within the Labour Party that had members. It wasn't just ideas, it was about building an activist base um, to put pressure on the party, which we did for a while, up until 2011 when we broke with just being a Labour Party organisation and said, we agree with lots of people outside of Labour, like Caroline Lucas, we disagree with lots of people inside the Labour Party, like Peter Mandelson, and therefore, it was stupid to have a rule that said you could only be a member of the Labour Party. So we opened ourselves up to everyone, Greens, Liberal Democrats and more non-party people. And just, I mean, we're going to
0: reflect on the current situation. One of the favourite words in our podcast is context. So we're going to look back as well. But just you personally, you've been, you have been—you were on a bit of a political journey because uh, we've talked about this before. I remember meeting you during the '97 election. And you used to say, I was political editor of the New States at the time, and you said, oh, Steve, your column's saying we're too cautious, it's so wrong with it. And then you say that by 2001, two, three, you yourself felt the new Labour project was too cautious, and you wanted to move it in or put pressure to move it in a different way.
1: So I've always been on the left of the party. When I joined as a 16-year-old, I was a Benite, then went through the process of the split between what was called the hard left and the soft left, and I was very much on the soft left side, but counted myself as a left winger, uh, saw the Labour Party lose lots of elections, and in that context, great word, re-evaluated, and I guess really lost my way a bit, because all that mattered after the loss of 92 was to win. Yeah, And when you, you only think about winning, because you can't countenance losing again, it would have been the end of the Labour Party – I started to forget about why I wanted to win. You then get kind of Blair coming in, surprisingly, in 94. Uh, And the interesting thing about Blair in 94 to 97 was it was a really interesting modernising project. It had kind of lots of interesting angles to it. It was listening to Will Hutton, to, to Giddens, to communitarianism. It had some elements which could be discernibly left wing social or at least social democratic. And I saw it and thought of it as a kind of, you know, modernizing left project. Or it could have been. It was it could have been contested to become a modernizing left project. It wasn't to be. And we can go into the reasons why it wasn't to be. And I actually disconnected pretty quickly, actually. By 98, I was getting deeply kind of sceptical. There was a front page of the New Statesman, which was billed as, I think, Labour's first mutiny. That me and a guy called Simon Buckby wrote, as we started to say, look, this isn't looking like a social democratic project. It's looking like something which is kind of connected, initially connected to the British public, but then kept on going in a right wing direction, and we're worried about it. Um, So let's just uh, clarify a couple of things. Because the
0: Compass is now a broader pressure group, movement, whatever you want to call it. But there are some specifics, aren't you? I mean, you, as a lot of our listeners are, you're passionate about electoral reform, aren't you? As 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 a mechanism to bring about change and and, and on the grounds of fairness. I mean, I've, I've always been a bit of a skeptic, but I've sort of come round. But but te, te, that's fairly central, isn't it, to one of the things? It's
1: abs- you... it's absolutely up front and central, yeah. and has become more so. And it isn't just because of the fairness argument. Fairness is a lovely thing, and everything should be fair. What's going on with our politics now, Steve? And I've kind of believing this more and more is that the old centralized top-down way of doing things I mean isn't just wrong in of itself it could it worked very well in the kind of what you'd call the fullest area the very you know structured hierarchical command and control you get to the top you pull the levers you make change happen now in a kind of much more complex networked world you've got to build alliances you've got to bring people with you people have got to participate in the action of change and not just be you know down the food chain and have things done to them but more than that I think that first past the post it scuppers any chance of what compass would call a good society one which is much more equal and sustainable it does so because it so preferences the interests of the elites and the swing voters that because everything is so centralized around two parties and the leadership of those two parties, the big powerful elites can buy their way to influence and power, and then they get more influence and power, and then they buy more. And those politicians are only really interested in the interests, in the, in the views of a sw- few swing voters in a few swing seats that turn every election. So those two things and the centralisation of politics it enforces on us stops us putting the radical ideas and the radical issues on the table so that you get a Labour Party that either thinks it can win through kind of Corbyn left-wing Appeal to you know the, the people who never vote, and there's there's something in that, but nowhere near enough as we found in 2019. Although 2017 is interesting, and we should mm. never let people forget what happened in 2017.
0: It's it's isn't it interesting how that election has always been sort of airbrushed out of history as no Corbynism has. has been
1: made. Yeah, it, it's the, like it didn't happen because it's yeah. inconvenient for people who now that run the party to recognise it in 2017. You know, something interesting happened. And we'll come back to context maybe mm. about that. The other way to, 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 so it's either a kind of hard left 1945 radical project, but one I think that had some good elements, but was out of its time. Or you get a kind of Blairite and now Starmerite agenda, which is cautious, centralized appeal to right wing voters, don't upset the city, don't upset Rupert Murdoch. And that, and it won in 97 whether it can win again in 2024, we may get into if we have have time. But what it doesn't do is change the country. Because already, you've loaded the guns in favour of the right wing press and the city, which ends up with Brexit losing the Red Wall, losing Scotland. And if Starmer does the same thing again, it will have the same unintended consequences of unleashing all of those forces that aren't getting what they want and the conditions between now and 97, which will hopefully get into are so different mm. that I can see a Starmer government, if they can win and fall over the line first, falling into chaos very quickly. And then what? That's the question.
0: Let's look at the current situation and then perhaps go back and reference it with the, with the past, some, in some cases, quite some time ago, 97 <laughs> years ago now, alarmingly. <laughs> <laughs> No, see, I interviewed Lisa and Andy for the podcast, um, and she was the first we I uh, did with when we started doing these interviews. Now, as you know, she is talking about a historic transfer of power from the centre. When I sort of quoted Tony Blair, actually, from the build-up to 1997, where he said, which reflects an ambiguity on all of this, at a local government conference, uh, "We will give you more power if you use that power responsibly." And she laughed as if there's no way that's going to happen next time. So, so, are you wary of that? Do you not think it is built on enough solid foundation or or what? Because you say there isn't the same kind of excitement of ideas as there were in the build up in 90s 90
1: to 97. So, uh, I think it's almost nothing like 97. The one bit that's similar is a tired conservative party although i'm not sure it's as tired now as it was in the run up to 97 mm-hmm. actually there's a lot of right-wing think tanks who are thinking linking up to american think tanks who are thinking yeah. who are putting forward n- new ideas there are deeper issues and we'll come back to the, the, the deeper issues but so there's a there's a surface level issue just in terms of of talent i mean we worked around... I worked for Gordon Brown for a while. You know, I worked with Tony Blair. I saw Peter Mandelson at work. I, you know, watched Philip Gould do his, you know, focus groups. And there was Alistair Campbell and there was Jonathan Powell. And there was a whole bunch of people in the shadow cabinet, brilliant minds like robin cook you know and Mm. and six Mm. others okay there was a deep level of 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 still abiding quality in the british labor party which you know there are some talent and you've mentioned one lisa nandy but there isn't a great deal of it at all and they had talent ability drive imagination wit Mm. verve arrogance Mm. but but it, it made a spectacular thing they were interested in ideas as i've mentioned already they were picking from you know, Anthony Giddens to Will Hutton to Charlie Ledbetter to Julian LeGrand. There were all sorts of ideas about you know how do you make change happen, how do you win people over, what's the nature of of modernity. They mm. had deep philosophical conversations. They were an incredible team that was certainly Gordon and Tony were that talked to each other incessantly. There was a debate about where do we go to and what did we do and how did it happen. And they set up and helped engineer other think tanks. The IPPR came to life. There was yeah. demos. There was a whole ecosystem of ideas and thinking and vibrancy, right? And and there is none of that now. There is absolutely none of that at all anywhere. So you've got both kind of deep thinking, talented people. And the other bit that you had, well, this is the deep bit. You had incredibly benign economic circumstances. This was 60 consecutive quarters of growth. Mm -hmm. There were no distributional issues whatsoever whatsoever. And therefore, you could just let the city rip. You could top skim the money and plough it into Sure Start and you know, anti-children's poverty measures, you know, NHS, education, etc. So really, I mean, it's unbelievably easy circumstances to do mild social democracy, again, compared to now, strikes, polarisation, you know, etc. Et no, and no growth no growth absolutely zero growth no and, and no and no prospect of it yeah um and then there was even then there's subterranean issues that new labor was still working off of the kind of uh the embers of that powerful social democratic moment after 1945 there were still big strong trade unions there was still kind of you know labor quite forceful in local government it was still kind of there as a political force. Much of that has now, you know, completely disappeared, and the whole driving force of that post-war settlement, the Fordist system of production, the threat of the Soviet Union, you know, uh, the, the, the the conformity and the place for kind of deference in society everything every i mean new labor was on the kind of tail end of that and managed to spin out a good yarn for quite a while out of that mm. now globalization mm. financialization consumerization polarization everything counts against you know a labor kind of you know position so we're in incredibly weak circumstances i understand that people are desperate for a change of government as am i But it has to be one that's deeply rooted intellectually, organisationally, structurally, culturally, etc. As New Labour was to some degree in 97, not enough, I would argue, but to some degree. This is a surface job that if it wins, it will be because the Tories were so terrible. And it will not have the roots to prosecute a politics of of change that the country needs unless it starts doing some really deep, deep thinking and action now. There are two elements to this, aren't there? how
0: does a Labour Party in opposition win? And then how does it govern? And winning uh, it's I mean, they're clearly following largely the sort of 97 model, a few incremental tax rises that will be somehow transformative. Um, Now, it is obviously on one level, incredible. uh, And you've got people like the FT already saying this is ridiculous to say you can transform everything with Mm. a non-DOM tax. But at the same time, people say to me, and I understand it, that the tax and spend debate in Britain is so ridiculous. You have to go along with it, that if you claim to have ambitions to do anything which costs anything, it actually loses Labour votes because you then get tax bombshells and all the rest of it. So if you were advising Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves on winning. Where do you see the areas that they could be bolder? We'll come on to the reality of government in a moment, because I agree with you this is so far removed from ninety-seven. But in terms of winning, you mentioned you were brought up with Labour losing. What more could they be saying and doing, do you think?
1: Well, I think it's about an having a political strategy. Um I don't know if people listening think I'm, you know, madly left wing. I actually think of myself and Compass as an innately, you know, pragmatic organisation. I want a change of government, but I want a change of government, not to one that's going to promise the earth because you can't promise the earth straight away, but one that recognises that the scale of the perma-crisis world we live in, climate, polarisation, ageing, care, housing, etc. These are all long-term deep issues that are going to take 15 to 20 years to put right what we're, we're going to call a new settlement. To act on those needs in the country requires you to build your capacity over time. This, this, is, this is what I struggle with. I really struggle with Starmer, and I didn't so much with New Labour because they had some sense of this, is how do you make yourself, how not, do you not just win an electoral battle, which is just necessary but not in, not sufficient, but how do you build your capacity over time? Not one term, but three terms or even four terms. So who are the people you want to appeal to and bring in steadily? Not overnight, but steadily over time. What are the institutions you want to build? Not straight away, but over time, which incorporate your values and your principles and endure. I mean, one of the things about the 97 thing to 2010, it just disappeared overnight. If we can, let's have a conversation about what the legacy of New Labour was after 2010, Mm. what lasted virtually nothing, virtually nothing, because it didn't build groups of people or institutions which contained their values. So how do you become an expansive political project? So you have to win the election, but don't win it in a way that makes you a, a cage out of your victory. Don't promise things to the right wing press you know, or the city of London, or people that are going to mean to say that you're kind of denying yourself capacity and space to move. And I think just like 97, in some respects, you know, people know that things are wrong, they knew they know that things need to change, you know, and they want politicians to speak with clarity and boldness. The most impressive politician of our age by a country mile, Steve, and you know, I'm going to say this is Nigel Farage, he spoke with clarity and boldness and changed our country um, in kind of the most deep and abiding ways and i, mean, I think that doesn't does, I, mean- I
0: didn't know you were going to say that actually because of course he never i mean he was an MEP, but he never faced uh, the house of commons and the responsibility of power did no, he no um so it is it is hard isn't it you can i mean uh, uh, we'll come on to kisama himself in a moment but it is I think it's much harder being an elected
1: leader of the opposition than leader of UKIP
0: or Brexit, isn't
1: it? Well, it it is, it is. I'm just, what I'm trying to say is that when you speak with clarity, I think people understand you and are more likely to follow you. I think, like it or not, Tony Blair spoke with clarity. He said, we won as New Labour, we will govern as New Labour. And a lot of us put our head in our hands because that's exactly the opposite of what we were hoping. But he meant it. And that gave him a kind of position in the country, to a lesser extent, Mrs. Thatcher, because actually her manifesto in 97 wasn't the Thatcherite, sorry, 1779, I apologize, wasn't the Thatcherite, you know, right-wing neoliberal agenda it became, but the roots of it were there. And I guess that there are moments, 1945, 1964, 1979, 1967, there are moments in which the country turns. And this ought to be a moment when the country turns, not just a bit, but a lot, because of Brexit, because of COVID, because of climate, because of polarisation and inequality. This is a massive moment for a turn. And the Labour Party is sitting there kind of in the headlights, frozen solid, small target, cautious conserv- conservative with a small c, fall over the line first. And that may work. But what I'm suggesting is if it works, it won't work for very long, And where is the energy, the agency, the institutions, the networks, the alliances, et cetera, which can make this a powerful, enduring, transformative political project?
0: There are some similarities, I think, between Keir Starmer and uh, uh, Ted Heath. You know, Ted Heath uh, was not... uh, seen as a great charismatic performer, but won the 70 election and then Mm. became overwhelmed very quickly. Now, that's not just down to him and it won't be just down to Starmer. But the context, as you've been suggesting, is much closer to the traumas of the 70s uh, than 97, where you had this growing economy and sort of reliably growing really for a long time. What is your assessment? You've worked closely with Labour prime ministers, people who became Labour prime ministers. Uh, what is your assessment of Keir Starmer as a leader? You've you, you said some of the things that you don't think in opposition uh, merit a parallel with '97, although clearly he's trying to follow that route map to some extent.
1: I mean, I find this stuff hard because you don't want to kind of dwell on personalities, but clearly in politics they matter and leaders matter. I've met Keir Starmer a couple of times, um, in, mostly in the period uh, when he was looking for people to back him to be the leader of the Labour Party, which I didn't. I ended up not backing anyone, but that's another, that's another story. There's a kind of rule of 30 in politics that if you don't enter Westminster around the age of 30, it's very, very hard to pick up on all of its kind of nuances, the factions, the personalities, the base, the history, et cetera. So he's coming to it in his fifties. Um, it's very hard to pick up all of that nuance, complexity, relationships, etc. He's clearly had a you know a competent, successful life outside of politics, um, and he's trying to bring some of that managerialism in, and that's no bad thing. You need managerialism, and you need people who can make things work. But he doesn't seem to have a deep, abiding philosophy. I remember. Brown and Blair would write for Marxism today. They'd write regularly in The Guardian. They'd make big argumentative speeches. You know, he has none of that interest, and and neither do the people around him that he hires. It's all quite uh, uh, mechanical, media-driven, short-term. And being a leader of a political party is incredibly difficult, but you need charisma, you need intellect, you need philosophy, you need drive, you need competence, and I'm not sure he, you know, he's ticking enough of those boxes n- now. Whether he can, whether he can pick up on ideas, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm. I'm trying to signal. I'm deeply worried. This isn't just about Starmer. This is about a Labour Party that is now. I go back to the the, the electoral system, the way it creates a hollowed out machine of people, because there's so much power at the top. You'll do anything to get there. You'll shin up the greasy pole. Then you find out actually, you know, you're not that powerful. All the talent goes into business, into media, into, you know, civil society. So this is a hollowed out generation. There are some good people in there, but by by and large, they're nowhere near the calibre of the past. And I think Starmer is part of that. And that's across the political system. So we're really suffering in the and this is why I want PR to inject challenge, to inject accountability, to inject alternatives into the system, because we desperately, desperately need it.
0: Yeah, in fact, one of the reasons I've become much more interested in electoral reform is, I mean, if you have two parties, they have to be and they have to function as a broad church, don't they? There's, you know, if you, You you can't do it otherwise. You either have coalitions of parties or within a party, and it seems to me with both the parties. Let's stick to Labour for now. That dynamic has just ended, you know. Um, So you have one side taking control, then the Corbynistas taking control, and now that other side taking back control again. And I think you wrote well. You wrote in the Guardian the sort of symbolism of the Jeremy Corbyn, uh, what will in effect be expulsion, highlights the degree to
1: which that whole dynamic has just broken down. So you get very small cliques from one faction, not just running the party, but then trying to run the whole country. And we know that small, tiny monopolies are not good at running everything because they don't have the feedback. They don't have the learning loops. They don't have all the information coming to them and going back out from them. And Britain is particularly bad because there are are other majoritarian systems, primarily the United States of America, When it doesn't happen to any, there's still, there's lots of talent in the American system, despite the fact it's a majoritarian, effectively two-party system, you know, but their parties don't function like ours. There are effectively electoral machines that come together for presidential, you know, and and Senate and, and House votes. They're not machines that run the party all day, every day, select the candidates from the centre and wheedle out the people you know they don't want. They have primaries, which opens up the space for new talent and different talent to come in. I look at the Labour Party now, it's just a desiccated machine for one faction to rule, to make sure that something like Corbynism never happens again. And I understand why some people don't want Corbinism to ever happen again. But in the process of throwing the baby out with the bathwater of making it just this... I say, dry, desiccated machine operation. And we don't live in a machine op- world anymore. We live in a network, connected, vibrant, cultural space where you ha- you can't, you know, command the future. You can only negotiate the future. And the Labour Party is not good at negotiating the future anymore. It's good at command and control, whether it was Corbynism or, Bla- or you know, to some extent, Blairism, but that was more open or now start, start, Stalinism did I almost say Stalinism Steve? <laughs> Starmerism that was almost a Freudian slip of the, of, 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 the, of the tongue it won't work it won't work and I'm looking at this thing going it won't fly this thing is not going to fly so what can we do to help make it fly and how else do we build alliances and do stuff in politics which gives the hope of progressive politics you know the kind of future that it deserves and need it? and what drives me on after 20 years Steve is, is if it doesn't fly you know, the, the authoritarian right are waiting in the wings to, you know, from Andrew Tate to F- Nigel Farage to, you know, to take an even bigger grip of our country. So the yeah. stakes now are really high yeah, in the yeah. way that they weren't in 97 yeah. because this stuff wasn't on the agenda. Now it is It is a radical, you know, egalitarian, sustainable agenda or it's the, the authoritarian right.
0: Yeah. No, if, if Labour get elected and it's a flop, the consequences of that will be huge. Um, I mean, Michael Jacobs, who you will know, he, he he used to run think tanks, worked for Gordon Brown in Number Ten. He wrote a piece arguing, actually, behind the cautious technocratic language, there's a radical agenda uh, uh, for the next Labour government. And he mentioned, I think, he mentioned the, the Lisa and Andy agenda of sort of unprecedented, in her words, transfers of power. The uh, Ed Miliband energy. Uh, agenda uh, and borrowing £28 billion a year to pay for it, though less than America and European Union planning, is relatively big stuff for Britain. Um, And Keir Starmer himself said when challenged about those early pledges, he said uh, on, on things like workers' rights, there's a bill waiting to be implemented on day one of a Labour government that I feel passionate about. So, that's the other side, isn't it? And there always is with these arguments. Yeah. There was with New Labour. When people said to Blair, you're far too cautious, he would say minimum wage, yeah. devolution. Yeah.
1: You know, uh, isn't that the same now? Well, it is to some degree. And it's interesting you bring, brought up Michael because Michael was one of the four people that started Compass with me back in 2003. When oh, did he, he start when, it with you? Well, yeah, oh, when he was, right, running, right. Um, he was uh, running the Fabian Society yeah. then before yeah. he moved into government. Um, And Michael's absolutely right. And and you've named the things that I would name workers' rights, the 28 billion, the energy stuff, you know, and the whole Lisa Nandy, Gordon Brown, you know, devolution of power stuff. I think they're all really necessary, you know, absolutely required. But I go back to that politics isn't about really about policy. It is, obviously, at the end of the day. But what makes you powerful? Labour in 1945, which enacted you know, the welfare state, the NHS, the, you know, the nationalisation of the of the top industries, etc. They were the policy elements of it. What enabled them to do it, and for that to become its own new settlement of its time, was supercharged trade unions, the threat of the Soviet Union, the capitalists knew that they, they had to do a deal with the workers that were coming back from the, you know, the war with, you know, guns on their on their on their shoulders, there's a whole range of of forces, ideas, so uh, a bigger a sense of political economy through Keynes, through the nature of the welfare state, through Beveridge, both Liberal Democrats I might or liberals then Liberal Democrats now. So there was a big philosophy. There was agency. There was institutions, fullest ways of doing things which we'd hone during the war, which could then be practiced in terms of you know running the the nationalised industries. And then the policy on top of that and then, you know, brilliant people like Attlee, Bevan, you know, Bevin, you know, ex- Morrison, et cetera, et cetera. Now, go back to, you know, those promises, those four things we just went through aren't bad in themselves. Will they be enacted? Will they be, be, be put in place? Will they be building blocks for the next move and the move after that? Or Will they be ever, very quickly ever decreasing circles because they've not thought of the big ideas? There isn't any political economy I can see behind you know, this Labour project. It's no sense of agency. Pander to the red wall. Forget everybody else. It, it won't hold together. There's too many tensions. And when you've got too many tensions, the way to deal with them is alliances, reach, negotiation, conversation, dialogue, not get out of my party unless you back me.
0: In terms of your role and compasses role in engaging with... um Perhaps an, a labor government or or whatever um, now I, I remember in the relative early days of compass, you had sort of some of the players were quite involved, like uh, John Cruddis, who was quite prominent in the Ed Miliband era, and you indeed had Chukarumana, who became prominent. He went on a journey didn 't he I mean <laughs> uh, I remember the first time I met Chukarumana, it was with uh, uh, chairing a debate between compass and progress, and he was with on the compass wing you know arguing for radical change and so on um but anyway there were roots in to various projects and you say you were very close to the new labor people in that mm-hmm. era what is the equivalent mechanism to engage now what are your plans in terms of that and 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 people you mentioned Caroline Lucas she's one
1: green yeah. mp you yeah. know yeah. Uh, so I think it's difficult. We have a we have a theory of change we call 45 degree politics. And 45 degree politics is just the diagonal line between the horizontal, the social movements, the energy, the creativity and the vertical which is the state and the big political parties. And we think interesting magical things happen when those two where those two things come together on that 45 diagonal degree line. And there is you know this is what gives me hope and energy, Steve, is the fact that out there, despite the system, despite 13 years of Tory misrule, people in communities, sectors are trying different things, experimenting with different things, using networks, using their capacity, inventing, reinventing, trying stuff and doing stuff. We say that they, they do that, but they're like fireworks. You know, because they light up the sky with their kind of brilliance and go around different councils and different areas where they're trying different ways of governing, making things happen, deciding, doing, inventing, etc. You need the state to kind of turn those fireworks into floodlights, that the state can invest in a way and make things happen and regulate and plan, etc., which can take all of that stuff to scale. Now, who are the people, you know, in the Labour Party? who are interested in that? Well, I would say Lisa and Andy definitely is, you know. I would say Steve Reed is, from what he said recently about a rights agenda, but Steve was part of the cooperative um, uh, council movement as well. So he gets that instinctive thing about giving power away. The purpose of a Labour government is to give power away, um, or a Labour-led government. But, you know, I was listening to some of the, the pollsters recently. If there isn't going to be... If it's too much to ask for a majority Labour government, then will they have to work with Caroline Lucas with you know Liberal Democrats who have an instinct to be liberal and give things away? Um, you know, so you know, we work with Caroline, but we also work very closely with Leila Moran in the Liberal Democrats, who's a you know a star of the of the future. And we've always spotted those people. Lisa Nandy was involved in Campus from about two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, because we spotted her as someone who would want to give power away in order to kind of change our country. So we'll engage with all of those people. But I do have to say, it's getting increasingly difficult to find the people who want to have an intellectual conversation in order to prosecute a practical conversation further down the route. And you mentioned John Crudus, I mean, you know, so sadly that, you know, John Crudus is leaving parliament, you know, at at the next election. The brightest brain in the PLP, I would say, by a country mile. But our system, you know, mitigates against those people because it doesn't embrace, you know, their, their, their ingenuity and their brightness. You look at Danny Kruger on the conservative side. These people are not brought in and used centrally, the big thinkers, because party politics is so narrow, so monopolised, so centralised. We've got to break it up. When we break it up, then we can bring real talent in and we'll have more people to work with.
0: Neil Lawson, thank you very much indeed. that was Neil Lawson uh, on uh, the current situation and the past, of which he was a player in different forms. So there we are. Well, what a week. We've had the uh, Northern Ireland protocol become, what's it called? The Windsor something or other. Um, And as I say, I think it will be interesting to see what the consequences of the Windsor arrangement, I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head, uh, will be, both in terms of the specifics, in the way uh, things develop in Northern Ireland as a result, more widely in terms of Britain's relationship with the European Union and the potential for other grown-up conversations to take place, whether it will lead, finally, to... Uh, Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost uh, being exposed for the uh, mediocrities they were, and more than that. I'd be amazed if Johnson read the full uh, deal that emerged on Christmas Eve, as in the trade arrangement with the EU. And we've talked enough about Lord Frosty Frost for the rest of our lives. Um, And whether then, more widely, uh, the Conservative Party... Uh, or parliamentary party stops foaming at the mouth when the word Europe is uttered. And that foaming has been going on for many decades. I pose the questions. I don't know that none of us know the answers to this for sure. politics being so febrile. And then as I said at the beginning, whether it gives Sunak a prime ministerial sense of weightiness and seriousness um, and a capacity for detail and a sort of coherence to his wider project. You know, for example, unlike Keir Starmer, what he said in his leadership contest, which he lost before winning in that mad period, is wholly at one with what he did before and after. Will these things start to acquire a kind of weightiness and a sense that government has changed? And there we do get to 1990 to 1992 when voters thought there'd been a change of government with John Major replacing Margaret Thatcher. I merely pose the questions. We need to get together very soon to reflect on all of these. Thanks to Neil Lawson. Do get in touch with me at steverick14 at icloud.com with your reflections on anything we've talked about in this podcast, the one earlier this week. And let's get together very soon. Thanks a lot. Bye.